Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic. And of course, my monthly co-host, Jared Murphy author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how to contribute. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is David Collis, and he has written a book called Jesus the Man. Oh, interviewing Jesus the Man. Sorry about that. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Gary. So I've always had one big question about, well, a lot of questions about Jesus. But I would always, my main one is, what was he doing for the other 30 years of his life? Well, I think that that's um, the million dollar question. And I know that <laughs> I had that. And I felt like in my book, I wanted to address that particular history uh, in Jesus's life. And the way that I had to go about doing it was very kind of roundabout. And uh, I asked myself, how did Jesus arrive at the conclusions that he arrived at? And what would be the most likely scenarios that he would have had to have experienced to get to the place where he is? Um, Paul likes to look at Jesus from a very symbolic and archetypal way. You know, he's like the second Adam. He's this um, kind of mythic kind of figure. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world, all those kind of concepts. And some of those concepts were already uh, within the Greco-Roman culture. But Paul then starts to use those ideas and uh, shape Jesus in kind of a Greco-Roman ideal. So the question for me was, what happened to Jesus before he started his ministry? And then the bigger issue was, how can I even find that out? What would there be? And um, remarkably, what I found is that by just looking at his sayings, they told me a lot about Jesus. And then from there, the the other questions were, how would he be able to arrive at these conclusions and this wisdom? And so from there, I was able to kind of reverse engineer his life. Okay. So... um... What was he doing? Where did he get all this stuff? Well, um, there seems to be some very important ideas that um, are that Jesus is actually bringing to the table. And so these ideas involve um, a new vision of the Father. So what is that? Uh, it involves uh, a different way of viewing the world than you would find in, say, the wisdom uh, in, in Judaism and in the, the wisdom traditions of the Jews, you see him um, at odds with the establishment, particularly the religious establishment. He, he's going after um, the Pharisees in a very aggressive way. He says that they're whitewashed tombs. 
um, and that they they hold the kingdom of the heaven. They hold the kingdom. They hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven, but they don't themselves enter into. Uh, and so, what we see is one thing about Jesus that he's doing is he he seems to be confronting the the Jewish traditions. So from there, I had to keep asking myself, what is it that you're up against? What is it that you're frustrated by? What is it that you know that you're bringing to the table? And when I started to analyze his sayings, I, I, I had a couple of epiphanies and I had a couple of new questions that I kept asking. And the epiphany was, after compiling Jesus's sayings that are the, the scholars believe that he actually said, I compiled 25 pages of the sayings, single spaced. Uh, I think it was 11 font. So this is a lot of this is a lot of pages of just his sayings. Mm -hmm. From there, I took those sayings and I grouped them into subject, and I discovered that the number one thing that he talked about, of all things, was money. The number two things that he talked about was food, and then the number three thing that he talked about the most was the kingdom of heaven. So those three things started to give me some food to really bear down and think about Jesus. The other thing that I started to realize, and this is what I was trying to refer to earlier, is the, the epiphany that I had. And that is that Jesus is speaking from experience. He is speaking from a position of knowing. Jesus never speculates. He doesn't say, I think this is the way things are. I think it might be this way over here or it might be that. No, he is very definite on what it is that he knows. So again, I go back to how would he know this? The other thing that I noticed when I did this research and I compiled all of his sayings, I recognized that there were all these different influences that were um, affecting what he was saying. And that made me believe that there was a whole lot more to what happened in his um, early years and those missing years that made these pause. So one, he has a lot of Essene references. Two, there is, he uses a particular uh, dialectic uh, and rhetorical style that is very consistent with Greek argument. Three, uh, he, he seems to know his Hebrew traditions really, really well. So, I mean, I, you know, some people think, was he actually a Jew? And, you know, there, yes, he was. He's a definite Jew. Uh, and he was from the Jewish traditions. And then there are also some other ideas that he seems to be influenced by. There's some uh, Egyptian religious influences. There's Hindu influences. There's uh, Taoist influences. There's Buddhist influences. And there's um, uh, Lao Tzu influences. So there's a very strong element in Jesus's ministry and his wisdom that is directly derived from the East. So, 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 it's, so it's did he like travel same. around the world? Like, did he go to Asia, India, maybe study with other Buddhists and Hindus? Well, we have a couple of questions that we would have to ask, and that is did Jesus travel? And so that was one of the questions that I had to ask myself. And lo and behold, there seems to be a lot of comfort with Jesus when he goes around his ministry traveling. And that was one of the clues that made me believe that Jesus was um, somewhat of an avid traveler because he seemed to be doing it so often. The other one 
is that his parents, when he was a, an infant, took him down into Egypt. And the question is, is where did he go when he was in Egypt? So that, too, gave me another insight that Jesus was a traveler. Mm -hmm. Jesus also got onto, you know, the boats in, in the Sea of Galilee. So there's another element of travel. You see Jesus traveling down into Jerusalem. There's another element of travel. So travel seems to be part of Jesus's repertoire. And it, because of that, it seems very consistent that he would do some long extended travels. Um, and from there, we also know that there are um, some traditions of Jesus being in Asia. There's some very strong traditions. And that makes me believe that he did go to uh, Asia. The other thing that was also uh, that I also was able to discover is that I referred this to um, as um, Jesus was able to endure a great deal of physical hardship. And to me, that made me think that there was an element of training in the East in some type of martial arts because he was able to control his body. So the first thing that we see Jesus doing is after he gets, well, one, first of all, he walks to see John the Baptist, and that's about a 90-mile walk. So that's pretty tough. Um, the second one is, is after he's baptized, he goes out into the desert for 40 days, uh, and he fasts. And then uh, the third thing that Jesus did was that he went on this ministry in which he was constantly on the move. He was constantly harassed. He was constantly experiencing, you know, a lot of good and bad. And then the final thing that Jesus was able to endure on a physical level was, you know, the, um, the stations of the cross. So to me, that also meant that there was some element that Jesus learned about being able to control the pain of the body. And that's also a very good, uh, the East is a very good place for learning that. So maybe he was trained in some type of martial arts. Here's what we don't have. We don't have Jesus saying explicitly that he went anywhere. You never hear him say, hey, when I spent some time at the pyramids and I went and, uh, you know, I found the king's chamber uh, or I went to the Sphinx or the Sphinx. Or he never says when I was at the, you know, up in England and next to the white um, cliffs of Dover. Or you never, he never mentions anything about going to the East. Those, all those ideas, at least as they were recorded in the New Testament, do not exist. But the influences do exist. Right. I totally agree. I've always thought, I mean, this was always my own theories that Jesus traveled. He, he, he went to Asia. He studied there, came back and tried to adopt what he learned. Um, in a way that he could teach it to the Jewish people. Yes, and that's how I see it. There was something that was that he learned. There's a number. There's a lot of wisdom that he learned close to home. There's also a great deal of wisdom that he learned that was from another region, you know, of of the earth, which I think is Asia. Mm -hmm. And what he tried to do was bridge. These two traditions and these two locations, the East and um, the Near East, to ancient Judaism. And that he, I also believe that he was um, a man who, and his family believed, or at least his mother believed, and I believe his father believed, that he was destined to do something quite remarkable. And Paul brings up, in fact, there's a lot of things that were mentioned, you know, about Jesus being a Messiah. 
And it's important to recognize that Messiah doesn't equal Son of God. It doesn't equal divinity. It only means that you are one who is going to, who is anointed and you're going to bring new information to people to help them along. And the Jewish culture has been kind of uh, forged and sculpted by ideas of saviors that came and helped them at times of trouble. So we have uh, Abraham leaving the Ur of Chaldeans, going into what is, you know, present day Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, we have King David doing what he did with the um, uh, David and Goliath. Right. We know um, we have Moses taking the, the Jews out of Egypt. And so we have these heroic kinds of people that were there to help uh, the Jews develop, sustain themselves, bring new information and new insights into the world. And Jesus was a part of that tradition. And he believed it. And he, he modeled it and he uh, lived according to it. Well, I think that, that you know, from my own reading, too, is I wonder if Jesus was involved in a Jewish mysticism side, like the Kabbalah. Because there are a lot of um, shared ideas in Kabbalah and stuff that's also found in Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. I, I, I think that from what I have read with um, the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism is that it really started to develop in the Middle Ages. Now, whether or not there were earlier traditions that, that were exploring that idea, um, I haven't been able to discover that. Mm -hmm. So what we do have is we have the Old Testament and we do have today the Dead Sea Scrolls and we know what the scribes of the Dead Sea were interested in. And they do have some very peculiar things that they were, they had written about and that they had documented and that they had uh, preserved within that culture. One is the giants. They talk about the giants. It's a very small fragment. We have the book of Enoch mm -hmm. and um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other, uh, some of the other things that they had. And it's just, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. But yeah, so there are some elements within the Jewish a community of understanding some, you know, deep mystical ideas. But most of what we see in the Old Testament has to do with the stories, the mythology, the history, and uh, the whole s set of laws and the whole set of like the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, their wisdom traditions. And when you compare Jesus's wisdom sayings with, say, some of the Proverbs, you're, re you're really comparing like apples and oranges together. So in the in the Proverbs, you might talk about, the, you know, the wise man does this and the foolish man does that. But um, Jesus doesn't say those types of things. You know, he'll say, turn the other cheek. You know, he'll talk about the, the sower. He'll talk about the kingdom of heaven is, you know, inside of you. He'll say those kind of things, but he doesn't really kind of use the same um, wisdom that you find in those those types of um, wisdom traditions. Right. He's bringing something very new to it. To the Jews. So you mentioned that he's mostly taught about three topics money, food, and the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a lot of things that he talked about. What happened is, is those are the three things that were the most he spoke about the most. Mm -hmm. so, so he seemed to be using food in his stories a lot. He uses money 
in his stories and his parables a lot. And he uses, um, he speaks of the kingdom of heaven uh, 22 times, and that also includes the Gospel of Thomas, and there are nine themes to those. Hmm. So was Jesus for money or not for money? Well, this also is a very fascinating um, subject. So Jesus, from what I've been able to determine, is that when I broke down the money sayings, there were four types of people that he was using as as references. He was using a merchant. He was using a person who owned an estate that was selling um, cash crops, whether, you know, I don't know what they would have been. They would have been oil or uh, date palms or something, but he was using that, uh, the plantation, the grower um, archetype. He uh, was one who talks about using his hands to make money. And then there was also the idea of the person who was inheriting money. And of course, that means that he's inheriting something that he has not earned anything for. It's just given to him. And that, uh, when I, it got to the two, well, when it got to the three, the inheritance, the merchant, and the plantation type of owner, or, or the farmer, those three things had information within them that made me believe that he was very educated in finance, property, um, taxes, uh, <clears throat> labor relations. I mean, all these are in the metaphor. All these are in his um, his uh, parables. So he seemed to be very adept at understanding money. And he was able then, this is one of his geniuses, is that he was able to take those ideas and then tell a new type of story related to those ideas. And he put those into his parables and his aphorisms. And I think that that was one of his geniuses. Hmm. And what was the message behind that? There were several. Uh, the one that I like the most is um, how you how you invest your money to gain um, the maximum amount of profit from it. So there's one parable in which he had, um, there were three people. And the way it goes is the uh, owner the, of the plantation, the owner of the, the estate, says to three of his servants, uh, I am leaving for a while and when I come, I want, and I'm going to give you some money. And when I come back, I want you to tell me what you did with it. And so after a while, he comes back and he calls the three men up and he says to the first one, I, I, this is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. So he says to the first one, he says, tell me what you did with your, the money that I gave you. And the servant is so scared of him. He says, Oh, master, I was so afraid that I I wasn't going to do right by you that I buried it. And he goes and gets the money back from the hole that he dug, and he gives him the money. And then the, sir, and then the master says to the next one, tell me what you did with the money. And he says, well, I invested it, and I got a 10% return on your money. And then he looked to the third one, and he says, tell me what you did with the money I gave you. And that servant says, oh, I invested it and I got a 100% return. And Jesus replies, and the, and the, um, the master said to the all three of them, 
you two that didn't make, you know, you that you buried the money and you that gave 10%, only got 10% back, give all that money to the one who made 100% of my money. So isn't that a, a peculiar kind of story it that is. you would be telling? Hmm. So that was one way that he talked about money, is the how money is invested. And he himself was acting as though, uh, as if he were a merchant. He was an, I call him an entrepreneur. It's an architect of the um, entrepreneur. He was, his product was the father and the wisdom of the father. And he was going around as best as he can and promoting that product. And that was also part of his, a part of how I was looking at Jesus. Wow. That sort of changed my whole idea of the way I looked at him as sort of being against money because like when he was like a kid he goes and he trashes all the merchants tables at the temple that's uh okay so that's a very different point of view and maybe we can kind of get into that uh at another time but that's at the end of the ministry and that too i had to reconstruct and reimagine what was he really trying to accomplish with that but when it came to money when i looked at all of those money say uh sayings i realized that he came from a wealthy family and in Luke, it talks about his mother was a woman of means, which meant that she had money. So Jesus came from a wealthy family. And um, what they did, I, I really don't know. It's possible that they were builders. It's also possible that they were merchants of some, some respect. Or it's, you know, it's possible that they owned some type of property in which they were growing uh, something and then selling that. Wow. So Joseph and Mary weren't just like wanderers. No. <laughs> That's always been the image I had. It's interesting. I guess. Uh, so the image is that we have that Jesus is the poor itinerant, mm -hmm. you know, a prophet out there. Yeah, born, born in a barn, you know, all that right. kind of stuff. Well, um, this gets into some more, uh, again, part of what I had to do was I had to read a lot of history, both Roman and Greek and Egyptian. And I had to look at different religions. And I also had to understand some of the issues that were taking place in the first century. And I also had to understand the nature of the Apocrypha and how the early or the tradition between the end of the first temple and the beginning of the second temple period, what how that developed and how that affected the first century Jews. And so this is a very, very important issue. And, you know, part of the Messiah kind of comes out of the, this period. But um, Jesus was living in a very, very tumultuous time. We have um, Herod the Great was half Arab, and he was married to uh, a high priest's daughter, who at the time was uh, being ransomed by the Persians. So uh, this, this the King Herod was considered a half Jew, and therefore he was disqualified completely from being on the royal bloodline, and that really upset um, a lot of Jewish people. The other thing that was also um, really important is that the the high priests and the temples of the high priests, from what I was able to research, were appointed there. Um, not because of their merit and not because of their bloodline, but because the Romans put that position of a high priest up for sale. 
And whoever had the most money bought it. And this was very important because the temple was a type of bank and it was a type of uh, market and an exchange. So you had a lot of spices coming through there that were for sale. You had <clears throat> all the sacrificing meat that was for sale. And you had all the, ex the money exchangers, a banking system that was for sale and all the various oils and whatnot. And a lot of that money went to the high priests. So it was a paid position. And this is one of the reasons why the Essenes were so angry with what was going on that they left and went out into the desert. And they felt that they were the legitimate tribes of Israel and not what was going on in Jerusalem. So Jesus comes walking into this. Okay, he's born into this situation where the, the, the king of Israel is <clears throat> essentially a puppet for the Romans and the, the high priests are puppet for the Romans. And the high priests were making daily sacrifices to uh, Caesar. This didn't go well with a lot of the Jews, and they revolted, and they got very upset about it. So there was a lot of contention there. So at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a man by the name of Judas the Galilean who was a very devout um, Jewish rabbi, and he couldn't stand the idea that there would be these foreign these foreign invaders and this foreign influence on both the, the royal family, the political royal family, and the royal family on the religious side of things. And he decided that anybody who acquiesced to these people, these foreigners, was worthy of death. They're not worthy to be free to worship God in the way they did. So he went on this rampage up in the Galilee and started slaughtering. He went from village to village and town to town and slaughtered everybody. And so it doesn't, it's not a far-fetched idea that at that time when Jesus was born, that they would actually you know, his family would get up and leave because their build, their, the where, where they, where they lived, which is very, uh, in Sephiroth, most likely <clears throat> was being attacked by Judas the Galilean. Hmm. So it's not so much a theological idea as much as it is as a political idea in an insurrection. That's interesting. You know, the, the idea of Jesus coming from a wealthy family and traveling to me it almost reminds me a little bit of the story of like buddha you know buddha was like the son of you know royalty and got tired of being you know in the palace and just sort of took, takes off to find his own way right he's starting to recognize recognize that outside the palace walls there was sickness there was death there was ugliness yeah. there was a lot of suffering and that really um jolted him to want to understand what that world was like because he understood what the world inside these the palace walls were like mm -hmm. there are parallels to jesus's story however um i think jesus's father was a very smart and a very pious man and that he was well connected with a lot of different people uh both in judea and outside of Judea, and he knew how to make money. But he was also a very righteous and a pious man, and he recognized something in Jesus in that he was going to do something very important in his life that was going to help the Jews. Hmm. So he supported Jesus as much as he could to fulfill that role. 
And one of the roles that I believe that Jesus played, or one of the things that Jesus was able to do, is that he was able to go to India and learn all that he learned. Have you been able to identify maybe some specific teachers or people that Jesus may have come in contact with to learn from? My guess is that it was probably at the base of a, um, a monastery in the mountains. So the way the route was, so just know that the, 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 the Silk Road that went from China into Turkey and then down into um, Syria and then down into essentially the Eastern Mediterranean, that route wasn't open until the second century, probably the first quarter or the second quarter. So somewhere around 125 or 150. But there was a route to get to India. And that route is that you'd have to go down to the Red Sea, then you'd take a boat or you'd even walk along the coast. And then you'd get to, to Yemen. And from Yemen, you can then take a boat as long as there was the trade wind. So it was seasonal. And that those trade winds would take you from the tip of Yemen all the way to the west coast of India. And from India, then you know, he was able to probably travel up and go find um, what he might have been looking for. And there might have been something very specific that he was looking for. Do you think he traveled alone or do you think he had sort of like an entourage that was provided for him by his family? Uh, my guess is that there was an entourage up to a point, And then after that, then he was on his own. That would be the, the, the most logical. Wow. But it's possible. See, this is all what's very possible, and this is what was going on. Hmm. Um, was Jesus motivated politically? Uh, it's hard not to be. Um, when you start speaking about the Father the way that he did, it's hard not to be a political agitator by bringing in something very new. These Middle Eastern cultures, once things are written in stone, so to speak, they're codified. So breaking up these traditions is nothing short of revolutionary and seditious. So there is an element of Jesus that recognized the importance of what had to take place. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like Judas the Galilean who went after the Jews and killed and slaughtered the Jews. And by the way, when you find the, the route that Judas the Galilean took, and then you start looking to see where Jesus went in his ministry. And then when he died, and then it says that after his death, you know, he was walking with the men on the road to, uh, I can't remember the name of the road. Anyway, these towns that are mentioned are also the exact same towns that Judas the Galilean went to. So, I mean, it's very possible that Jesus, well, one, everywhere that Jesus walked into, there was already this built-in fear that maybe this guy with all of his entourage is going to come and slaughter us. So one of the first things that Jesus is saying is peace be with you, right? You know, I come in peace, that kind of thing. So, um, <clears throat> Anyway, getting back to the idea of whether or not Jesus's role had a political motivation, in some regards, yes, but it also had a, a religious um, point of view. And that that religious contention that he had also was political because the the, the temple was one 
Because, you know, like our, our branch of government is the judiciary branch, the executive branch, and the legislation branch. Well, back then, it was the king and his lineage and the high priest and their lineage. So those two things were married like a man and a wife. They didn't have the trinity that we have. So when you attack one, in a sense, you were also attacking the other. They were kind of equal but separate. So what was it about Judaism that Jesus was trying to change? Well, um, there were a lot of the um, calendar day celebrations, uh, the idea of fasting. Um, he didn't think that the Sabbath was always such a great thing, right? So he's being constantly letting his disciples not fast. He was questioned about that. Uh, he liked to drink apparently a lot. And so because of that, he was considered a glutton. Um, he was do he was doing work on the Sabbath. That seemed to piss people off. And he talked about turning the other cheek. That seemed to really upset a lot of people. Um, he, he talked to, about the priests and the, the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. So he had a, a definite attack on them. And most of what he was really interested in was he was against the legalistic concepts that were in that the Jews were embracing. That you if you you were in right standing with God if you did A, B, C, and D. So um, and then Jesus also changed the idea of uh, an eye for an eye to forgiveness. And that was very new. Or at least it seems to be very new. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like he was a work hard, play hard, little bit anarchist, little bit monk type person. Yeah, there's an element of all of that that's going on in here. And uh, I kind of put it this way is that, um, well, Jesus, Jesus uh, walked the walk and he talked the talk. And he wasn't willing to bend and he wasn't willing to um acquiesce to other people's demands because he knew what he was doing he was bringing something very new to judaism when he says in one of the kingdom of heaven sayings he says the kingdom of heaven is within you that right away at least from my point of view is a direct attack against the temple and the temple was the center of the jewish culture so the temple is the one that's hold, is holding God. It's, it's housing God in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus is saying, no, you are the temple of God. The kingdom of heaven is inside of you. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, he's kind of saying, you don't need to, you don't need this. Look in a different direction. So he's telling people to become mystics. Well, he's also asking people to live a particular way. Right. So not only is he thinking about mysticism, he's also thinking about living in a particularly different way. And as I understood this, it took a while for me to get this, but there are different pillars. So in the temple, there are different pillars that represent certain things. Well, Jesus, one pillar of Jesus's sayings are talking about the Father. And then the other pillar is how to uh, essentially... Uh, love your brother as yourself, or love your neighbor as yourself, and turn the other cheek, and those types of sayings that you would hear on the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. So there are two, there are two, there are definitely two strong pillars there that, that Jesus was involved in. And I think that most of his, um, his 
ministry m- modeled the Buddha's ministry mm-hmm. because Jesus kept saying uh, over and over and over again, he said, I do what my father tells me. And the, the less I become, the more the father becomes. Well, that is trying to lose your ego in a similar yeah. manner that you would find in the Buddhist tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's within his own ministry, he's doing a Buddhist practice. At the same time, Jesus is bringing new information to his disciples of which they've never heard before. So if you can just try to you know understand that when Jesus is saying the things that he's saying, and at the time that he's saying this, people are expecting somebody to save the Jews from the Roman occupation. And they're also trying to minimize the influence that the Greco-Roman culture embedded and kind of forced the Jews to accept. So there were three types of people that Jesus was confronting at that time. They were the ones who were the really devout Jews. They were the ones who were like half their foot was in the Greco-Roman world and half the foot was in the ancient uh, Judaism uh, world. And the other one was where you have a lot of people who just said, heck with it. You know, I really like this uh, Greco-Roman um, culture. I like the body. I like the gymnasium. I like pleasure. I like all these things. And I'm going to just go down that road. So Jesus is bringing, again, He's he is bringing something very different to the table. And he is really kind of affecting and pissing people off. At the same time, people are going, hey, are you the Messiah? Meaning, are you like King David or are you like Moses? Are you going to save us from these outside influences? And Jesus does something very interesting. And I didn't, I knew that, I didn't realize this at the time that I wrote the book, but I found out some other things later. And um, I kind of had to ask myself, why was Jesus constantly responding to the question when somebody says, are you the Messiah? And he would reset, and he would respond, who do you think I am? Because he doesn't seem to be one that loved the idea of, walking around and raising up his hands and raising his voice and saying, Hey, everybody, I'm the son of God. Listen (laughs) to me. He's not doing that. So he's asking this question. Who do you think that I am? Well, um, I was reading this one magazine article the other day and lo and behold, there was the exact same saying that was attributed to a Hindu God. When the Hindu God came to people, he was at, people were saying, are you a God? And he was saying, who do you think I am? Same quote, who do you think I am? So there seems to, again, there seems to be a very strong reference based off of what Jesus is saying and what he's doing that has a very strong Eastern influence. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see that. Um, how about the miracles that he did? Were they, was he actually doing miracles, um, healing the sick, making the blind see? Um was he using I, some type of a cult power that maybe he learned in Egypt? What was what was going on there? Do you think? Um, the question. I mean, this is this is so profound. Again, it kind of goes back to some of the issues that I'm, you know, I've been really kind of working through. The the most important thing for me when I was writing the book and developing the whole book was who is Jesus uh, and what can I know about him. So when it came to the mystical side of things, and when it came to the the miracle sides of things, I 
I couldn't answer that at that moment because I was I was looking at trying to develop a type of profile. Of, mm -hmm. You know, as if, it's almost as if I was trying to be, you know, an FBI agent and I was trying to analyze, you know, this this person, Jesus, and 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 putting together a uh, personality profile of him. So but because of that, I was able then to kind of start working through all this matrix of all these different types of traits that Jesus, you know, embedded and that he, he, he projected out into the world. But when it comes to the miracles, I have to assume that Jesus was capable. And, and when you go and you read some of the um, um, Hindu traditions and even in the Buddhist tradition, they are doing miracles. So it makes no sense for me for, for Jesus not to be doing this. The question is, is I know that this is one of the issues that, that arises in the, in the Gospels, is that what are the, how accurate are these Gospels? How accurate to what Jesus was doing did the Gospel writers um, put down, right? So did they really go back and they interviewed people and then write, write about it, or did they kind of write about, you know, what we would call historical facts and then go, wait, but there's still this other mythological element to here that is also true. Because the Jews uh, had a very different idea of truth than, say, the Greeks. So the Greeks were really interested in logic. You know, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if a man has two legs and I'm looking at a person who has two legs, therefore it must be a man. You know, there's this whole logic that they were dealing with. There was also a, a factual element that they would be uh, they, they dealt with that we would recognize that you would have when you get into college these days or even get your PhD. You're looking at facts. You're trying to understand the patterns. You're trying to understand all this different information. And then when you gather all there, then putting your your thesis together based off of all these facts. Well, that's how the great the Greeks looked at things. The, 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 the Jews looked at uh, truth very differently. They understood that there was a field and that the field is in play and there's truth to be known by the way in which you tell stories or your stories point to deeper meaning. So if you used a particular fact, that was okay, but it wasn't necessary to use that fact if it is, if you're still getting to the source of the truth by telling a story, because the story itself is pointing to the truth. The story is not the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like um, the saying, uh, don't mistake the finger for yes. the moon. Yes, I'm pointing at the moon. Don't look at my finger, you know, yeah. look beyond my finger. And so that's the way the Jews were looking at things. I'm not saying that that's 100%. But if you go back and you read their stories in the Old Testament, there's a lot of mythic elements to it. And there's also a moral story to those, to those stories. There's a moral element. If you go back and you read the Greek myths, they're they're looking at how you participate within all these different energies, whether it is the Bacchanal or whether it is war. The Jews are looking at things of like, hey, you know, um, this is morality tales to you know, don't 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 get caught up in these Canaanite women, you know, you're going to get blind by them, you know, that kind of thing. So they <laughs> they are two different impulses there. So one of the things that the Greeks and the Romans brought to this to the Jewish world was a very foreign, very, very, very foreign idea of culture and, you know, what's acceptable. And the best that I was able to uh, describe this as 
And this happened to me one day when I was up in Las Vegas and I was walking into Caesar's Palace and I had this complete epiphany. It was pretty amazing. I was looking around and I was looking at the Roman sculptures and I was looking at, you know, the gambling and all the cars and the women and all the good looking clothes and, you know, all this pleasure and all that. And I went, oh, my God, this is ancient Judaism. Our ancient Judaism is a very uh, devout and pious and uh let's just say uh religious kind of a people and so here you know caesar's palace represented everything that they hated so if you can imagine just take take las vegas and everything it kind of represents and plop it right down in the middle of you know the isis stronghold at raqqa and ask yourself what sparks do you think might fly because of these two different cultures they're not going to get along at all they're going to be at odds with one another and that's exactly what happened they were at odds with one another yeah makes sense also <laughs> wonder how many people so have, wonder is, how many people have that that revelation in vegas <laughs> well yeah well that was how i was able to kind of see what i was looking at it's cool it's amazing that you put that together that way well, I did study art and art history, and so I spent a lot of time at the um, Getty Museum. And a lot of it just seemed very, you know, normal to me. But then when I started recognizing the society that Jesus lived in, and I'm, then I was thinking back about all the sculpture that I looked at that was Greco-Roman, I went, oh, my God, now I understand. You know, we're, we're dealing with two really different worlds. Hmm. So... In the Greek world, man is the measure of all things. And of course, in the Jew, uh, Jewish world, God is everything. So, Wow. So what was it? I mean, what was so important that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for? Right. I mean, that's now that becomes the real amazing question. That's the million dollar question. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, these are really big, these are really big ideas. And so I really tried to put theology aside and I didn't really want to invest a lot because I spent so much time, you know, studying that. And I felt like I could only see Jesus through the lens of Paul and through the lens of the, the, the theological concepts of Christianity that I couldn't see Jesus. And I just felt that it was my mission to understand Jesus, the man. That's why the subtitle is the man. You know, maybe I'll write another book called Interviewing Jesus, the Son of God. But that wasn't the, the premise of the book. So I really wanted to understand Jesus from that uh, perspective of just his, his own humanity. How he got to where he was what he felt about the father, how he got to experience the father, what might have, what might have been the experience or experiences that uh, got him to understand the father. Because if you really look at and ex uh, understand Jesus's wisdom, the father is a very, very profound concept. And the concept isn't understood intellectually. It is something that you have to experience. That said, what you're talking about is when Jesus is doing what he's doing, what is his benefit? Why didn't he just say, oh, screw it, 
I'm going to go sit down on my, you know, my first century couch and watch some TV. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't do that. He felt compelled to do something different. I'm now having to think through the theological aspect of this, uh, the dimension of Christianity a little bit more. I know that I, I put it aside, but now I want to maybe bring it back. And that might be for another book. But I do believe that there are cycles of time that are, you know, cosmic cycles of time. And the concept of the Messiah, the concept of, you know, the Son of God now becomes an important concept at this time to usher in the new age, right? Which is the age of Pisces. And it took, you know, an avatar, a person like Jesus to sacrifice himself to that end. And he did through his ministry, through his life, he embraced the value of the divine and the way in which the divine was flowing through him. And he felt compelled uh, without question. I think there might have been a little question or a little doubt like everybody has. But I mean, he really was convinced this was the right thing to do. And. I also think that because of all of his training and all the wisdom and his opening of the heart, the opening of the mind, the way that he was able to endure all the hardships, that Jesus also recognized another layer of potential that is available to all human beings, and that is resurrection, which is an Egyptian idea, and ascension. And we're now talking about, in some of the uh, mystical or uh, um, new age like psych circles today they're talking about these concepts of ascension and jesus seemed to have experienced that two thousand years ago so maybe there's a technology that jesus was able to tap into and understand in a way that we are now starting to embrace or now starting to at least uh understand and looking and investigating a little bit more uh, aggressively wow you know, I always, you know, I didn't always think it, but I mean, I guess for like the, for a long time now, I've kind of had adopted the idea of the twin Jesus theory, that Jesus had a twin brother, that it was probably Judas, and Judas felt bad for betraying him and took Jesus's place on the cross, and Jesus escaped. Well, um, we have at the early stages of Christianity, all the way up until the canonization of the New Testament. So that's roughly three years, 300 years after Jesus died. So just think about it, 300 years. You know, our country is an old, as old as 300 years. So right. this tradition of Christianity, before it was fully formalized the way that we understand it through the Roman Catholics, took 300 years. Well, up until then, there were a lot of ideas that were circulating and that were embraced by people who called themselves Christians, Gnosticism being one, the very idea that you're talking about is another. Um, the concept, what, what is, excuse me, what is referred to as the proto-Christian concept that Jesus is the Savior of mankind and He died for your sins. That was, you know, developing and that, you know, got traction in the Greco-Roman world, as did these other ideas. So it's not uncommon for pe- people to say or for ideas to develop before this. Uh, canonization process for Jesus not to have suffered on the cross, for Jesus not to have died on the cross, and for Jesus to be only a man, for Jesus to be um, only a God, and for Jesus to be both man and God. So there was a number of things that people were 
thinking about and embracing, and there were different um, communities that supported each of those ideas. But my idea is that uh, when it got into the uh, end of Jesus's life, I do believe that the Father told Jesus it's time to spill blood, and that Jesus then went as my, the way I look at it today, is that Jesus then went on what I refer to as a suicide run. He did all those things, flipped the tables, the money merchants, and he, you know, got into people's faces at the temple to create a scene so that he would be uh, arrested and then uh, crucified, and that that was a suicide run. And that for whatever reason, that act had cosmic consequences, huge cosmic consequences, wow. and lasting cosmic consequences. Oh, you're really making me think here. <laughs> you know that? Because, like, one of the things, like, I never really thought about, you know, the idea, like, I thought, a lot of episodes on the whole extension type of new age stuff. I've done tons of it. I've never really connected that idea with Jesus being that way. But it makes sense. You know, when I really think about it. That that, that is interesting. You know, and yet, you know, I also have heard stories like and I know this one this is really getting like way out there. But um, you know, I've heard a story, I forget what book it was in, but I think it was like like the extended master of Saint Germain or something. And in that book, the, the one of the claims was that Saint Germain was also an Jesus was the incarnation of Saint Germain, and then he was Saint Germain, and then later on he comes back as Sir Francis Bacon. Like it's sort of, sort of like a almost like a reincarnation type of story. Right. So we do have Written, element, written stories in, throughout the world that talk about people who become God-like. We also know that there are elements of reincarnation that are accurate and true, like the Dalai Lama, and that you end up, you know, moving from, as you get, you know, the, the idea for, in reincarnation's point of view is that each life, hopefully get you closer and closer to understanding and experiencing and knowing the unity of all things, right? And that to, to do that is going to require multiple lifetimes. So the idea that, you know, you have one life to get everything right and then you die and you either go to heaven or hell, I don't, it, that, that's a very hard idea for me to embrace and accept. Mm -hmm. The other idea is, is that there are so many amazing and uh, difficult experience, human experiences to know and understand that it's going to take lifetimes to do it. And the question is, is while you do that and you come back, are you able to contribute something to mankind to help mankind actually raise its own vibration? And that's kind of where I am. And I do believe, and there is some literature that supports this, that uh, people can because of their life and the way they live their lives and because they were able to understand these principles and then uh, employ and use those principles that they have been able to overcome their humanity in such a way that they reach a certain level of divinity. And, and that maybe that's the way that we should recognize the Son of God. That there's 
there's a father exchange, meaning the really big father, the cosmic God, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the smaller part of ourselves, the, the son part of ourselves, in which there's got to be this communication and exchange in a, in a very profound way. And it seems like Jesus was able to do that. And his, his, uh, our father prayer is a classic example of just that, where he's recognizing God at both ends of the saying. And then there's, you know, leave me not into, leave me not into temptation, you know, give me my daily bread, etc. You know, it's a very simple way of, of, of living your life, but it's a life of transformation versus the life of, I want to be the most powerful person around. I want to have the most wealth. I want to have the most uh, prizes. I want to have the most women, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I want the biggest position. I want to be the ruler of the world, all those kind of ideas. Jesus seems to have recognized the power of the divine in him and that he, that was more than enough for him. To me, that makes me think that he may have reached some type of enlightenment. Well, that to me is the question that I asked. And when I looked at his life, I said, how can he have this level of endurance over his body? He had the control over his body. How did he have an open, open heart and how did he have an open mind? How do you get that at 30? It just seemed either, you know, maybe you were a savant and you were born with that, or maybe you have part of that born, you're born with that, those concepts. But you have to go through a lot of tri trials and tribulations to really be purified. And I am of the impression that Jesus went through his own evolution and his own learning curve. The other thing I, you just made me think of, that I've never really considered before, is the 40-day journey into the desert fasting. It sounds like almost like a yoga yoga type of practice, yeah, like something that yogis would do. Exactly. How do you overcome the body, the needs of the body? And, and, and you know, even over, yeah, exactly. Once that's conquered, then you know you're not your body. Then that would make it easier for him to sacrifice himself. There's another level of reality that he is now fully engaged in. It's almost as if he's. Uh, he is one end of the circuit, you know, and the God and he are exchanging information and energy at all, all moments and all consciousness at the same time. Wow. I never thought about some of this. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing that I've been up against is that if I talk to Christians, they're not, they, they hate what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And the people who are, uh, you know, decided that Christianity is no longer for them. Mm -hmm. They can't stand the idea of Jesus because of all, you know, the 2,000 years of tradition and history that have been placed on. So he has been, uh, he seems to have a bad rap, or he's the son of God. So, you know, for me to come come around and say the things that I'm saying to you, this is a very, it turns out to be a very either an exciting and enlightening type of information or it's it's a confrontation to the christian perspective that jesus was the son of god and he, he died for your sins i see it as an evolution right you know i mean i i can understand the conflict there but i also see something different like like as you can see behind me i go i'm a, I'm a buddhist uh, but i was raised catholic and um but later on, like after going, you know, 
learning about some of the Buddhism stuff, every once in a while I would be like, you know, go to church with my wife or whatever, and I'd be listening. I'd be like, um, what Jesus is saying sounds pretty Buddhist to me. Like it's almost the same thing. Yes. Yes. And you're seeing it. Yeah. I don't know. Do you read anything on? Um, have you read Thomas Merton? Yeah, I have read a little bit of Thomas Merton. I'm rereading. Uh, so I got introduced to Thomas Merton in my early 20s, and I'm now rereading the new seeds of contemplation. And I'm overwhelmed at what he's saying because it's I, I understand what he is talking about. And there is an element of the divine in the wisdom that he is sharing. And there's a great deal of mystical information and a great deal of communion and a great deal of love and a great deal of of the same experiences that Jesus must have experienced and the same wisdom and the same knowledge. And that knowledge comes from a variety of experiences. And one of them is hardship and the other one is these types of um, mystical experiences and one is enlightenment. See, I, I think that Jesus had some type of very extraordinarily profound experience, mystical experience. And um, I, I, I think it was more than just enlightenment. I think it had maybe, I thought maybe it could be a near-death experience. That's, that's very possible. Near-death experiences are extremely, extremely powerful. I had one of my own. And they're life-changing. <laughs> and they, they bring an information. And they bring in information that you didn't have before. And now you have insights into something that you never had before. And so now that becomes part of the uh, the guiding light and also the fuel, the fire that kind of pushes you towards that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, again, it's fascinating. One of the things I would wonder, though, is why wouldn't Jesus have described how he reached that level of consciousness as a guide for other people to follow? Or did he do it? And it's somehow encoded uh, in what he's taught. Well, uh, I think there's a level of encodement. I also think that you see elements of this in what the uh, Gnostics believed and their writings. And I also believe that there were things that Jesus probably, I don't know if he wrote them down. He doesn't seem to be one to be a writer. He seems to be an orator. You know, he loves... He's like a poet, you know, he's a wordsmith. Mm -hmm. And so he's more of an artist poet in that regard. So whether or not, you know, he actually started to scribble down some of his parables, because some of the parables are very complicated. You know, how, how did he go about developing it? Did he, you know, think through it and then, oh, wait, I need to add this. And was he writing this stuff down? Or did he just kind of work through each one of those parables and then uh, that was just another one of his tools in his toolbox. So now the question becomes, did he write things down? Uh, and right now we have no idea if he wrote anything down. It doesn't, it doesn't appear as though he wrote anything down. However, when you get to the Gospel of Thomas, the, either the first or second line in it says that these are the, these are the sayings that were written down by Thomas. So somebody was following. Here is a here is the Gospel of Thomas is saying that these were written down at the time that Jesus was born or that Jesus lived. 
Mm-hmm. So somebody was following him and recording what he, he wrote down. So maybe that's why he didn't have to write certain things down. Now, the other thing is, is just like what you're thinking, because I had to think through the same thing. If Jesus had experience A, B, C, and D, and this is what really got him going to do his ministry, did he tell anybody what those experiences were? Because I believe that he had at least three or four major and, you know, like, life-changing types of experiences that made him think or made him believe that the ministry was something that he needed to do and something that he could do. So the first one was, is there some type of alignment experience or a a near-death experience? The other one is, is that, again, I go back to his sayings, and those sayings are autobiographical. There is an element of truth to what Jesus is saying, and that truth is what happened to him. He talks about robbery and being beaten up seven times. And I thought that had to have happened to him. So I believe that he was beaten and robbed. I believe that he also, because of the prodigal son, that there was a sexual experience that he had that um, was very shameful for him. And that seemed to affect him quite a bit. And then I also know that there was some element of experiencing the very, very dark, seedy uh, depths of human depravity. You know, the dark night of the soul, little kind of things. It's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm human. I can't stand being human. I don't like all that. I believe that was another experience that he had. Hmm. And all those experiences he was able to overcome and use in his ministry. And that's why he was very sympathetic and um, also compassionate, is because he himself was there with these people in, in the same way that these people were searching, trying to understand the answers to things. And then he found it. That's why he says, Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. It sounds like, like most of the, almost like any man over 50 has had a lot of those experiences. Yeah. You know, and here he is at 30. So, I mean, he was a complete ideologue. Was he a complete um, uh, idealist? You know, it just seems to me that he, that was that was more. He was more than that. Do you he think they could have got? His, all, do you think they could have no, just got his age wrong? Do you think that he got his age wrong? Well, yeah. there is a. Uh, this is fascinating too. So, King Herod uh, died in the year uh, four BC, and when Luke talks about the the governor of um, the new governor of Judea, who's Roman, when it came to govern um, Judea, that was in the year 6 AD. There's a 10-year gap. Mm-hmm. So you have a period in which there might be a 10-year gap of Jesus' life. It's possible he could have been 30 or 40 when he started his ministry. But there's also uh, the Alexander the Great conquest in which he was 30 and he ended up con- conquering the known world at the time. And he went all the way to India and then he went all the way down into Egypt and he went, he started going into the West section of Egypt uh, before he died. And then he was also in Persia. So um, he did all that by the time he was 33. Julius Caesar did all of the same things that he did by the time he was 30 or 33, somewhere right around there. 
So we're now seeing some equation of Jesus being 30, 33 with his ministry and his death. And that was, for whatever reason, that seemed to be the Mediterranean ideal age. Hmm. And 33 is sort of a symbolic holy number in Judaism, yeah. isn't it? Uh, well, I know it is in the, um, the, Mason, on the Masons. Yeah. yeah, the 33 degrees. Hmm. Of course, three is, a, three is a prime number and so is 11. So it's two prime numbers multiplied by each other. Interesting. I don't know. With with this topic, there's always more questions. The other thing that that always makes me wonder, too, is the crucifixion story and the resurrection story is not just exclusive to Jesus. It's in the Egyptians. It's in the Norse. It's almost in everyone, every mythology. That's right. So we have definitely um, Greco-Roman influence. Uh, their mythology. I think it's the, um, oh man, I wrote it in my book and I can't think of it right now. Uh, and then it was also Egyptian. So the Egyptians were completely interested in uh, the, the resurrection of the body. The Jews were not. So this was a complete uh, way of thinking for the Jews. They also had to reimagine the world um, after See, when they went into captivity with the Babylonians um, in the year, I think, 565, and then they were released by King Cyrus, um, they were allowed to rebuild their temple, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. That is now referred to as the Second Temple Period. When the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in the year 70, that was the end of the Second Temple Period. During the first part of the Second Temple period, there was a lot of Greco um, uh, Greek influence because of Alexander the Great, right. and he brought with him concept of the soul, <clears throat> and that concept of the soul infiltrated Jewish thinking. So now they're working through resurrection, which is Egyptian, the soul. Where does it go? Because for the most part. God gave them the land, and that was the most important thing, the land. What happens after death is something very different. So they just figured that, you know, something happens and we don't know what it is. But the, 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 the God-man symbolism and archetype is also in Egyptian mythology, and there's a resurrection, a death and resurrection. And then there's also the same in the um, Greco-Roman mythology. So there are two mythologies that deal with death and resurrection. Mm. And the other concept is immortality. Mm. And how does one obtain immortality? With the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from the you know uh, Babylonian period or be, a little before, the idea was that Gilgamesh has his father, just like Jesus' father, is a god, and his mother is a human, just like Jesus' mother. And Gilgamesh goes on this uh, the hero's journey to discover whether or not he's going to be able to get into the world of the gods because his, he has, his father is a god. So he has blood or DNA or some aspect of himself that is, connect, that is connected directly to the gods. 
and he was told that he won't. So that's the immortality of the Middle East, was the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Greeks felt that immortality was obtained if you did some major feats out on the battlefield, and that your name would be remembered. And of course, then you have the Egyptian ideas of immortality, which is you you end up dying based off of certain things, and you get judged, and then from there you get to travel on into the into the, the world of the gods. Hmm. The Jews didn't have that; they just had just their land and the laws. So everything else was very different for them. Wow! So. So Jesus is now bringing something very different to what the Jews were recognizing. Is that there is there's you can actually participate and experience the kingdom of heaven because it's already inside of you, mm-hmm. and you can be living with it, and you can be living with it with the Father, and it's not external from you. Right. Um, how about? You know, I, there's always, just, you know, and I know you've probably heard this quote a million times, um, you know, like, you know, how, how people, how did people know that Jesus was the son of God? And then a lot of people will say, well, it was prophesied in the Old Testament in, in here, here, in here, you know. Um, and then there's some people that will say that the Old Testament was altered to fit the New Testament in. To make it work together, to make it so Jesus appears to be the Son of God. I believe that the some of the prophets and some of the Jews were getting some firsthand information about the events that were going to take place in the world, and that there was going to come a time where somebody like Jesus would come along. And that is referred to as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, so there might have been some elements within the Old Testament that are pointing to that. I'm not discounting that. I think that there is information out there. I'm, you know, people talk about the cautious records all the time. And, you know, the things are all stored in that. And you, if you resonate with it or you meditate on it, eventually you can open it and see it, you know, for yourself. I don't know how to think about that because it hasn't happened to me, but I don't want to discount it either. Right. Well, I, I have interviewed quite a few Akashic readers and have dived pretty heavily into you know Edgar, Edgar Casey that kind of stuff, and he was a Christian too, actually. He was. Hmm. Yeah, you know the end times. Uh, at there, Nostradamus, the end times. There were uh, Greek and Roman prophecies, and of course, you're thinking prophecy in the terms of, you know, what is this going to do for me in my life? And I need some guidance or I need some information. And, um, you know, I'm looking for immediate information to make decisions that are going to affect my life and maybe my people. It's very difficult to imagine when you get information that it's going to be 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, or 5,000 years down in the future, (laughs) what I'm supposed to do with this stuff. That to me is the... A funny question or a funny situation. So what do you think Jesus the man would think about Christianity in the churches in the way they worship him now in the way they use his name to almost 
judge and damn other people that are not followers of his message? Well, um, I've put some thought to this. And one of the things, the first things that I think of is, is that Jesus is being worshipped. And I think that that's a form of idolatry. Me too. So, and then you go down the road a little further and you're saying, why are you acting in such a way that is not consistent with some of the things that Jesus was actually saying? He says, don't judge. When his disciples would come up to him when they were with a leper or they were with a person who, you know, couldn't walk. And he says, hey, what did this person do? What sin did he commit? And Jesus is saying, nothing. Get up here, you know, get up. Pick up your mat and start walking. I mean, there was another element to what Jesus was talking about. But for, you know, people are completely fixated on the idea that if you act a certain way, then therefore what we're seeing are the direct consequences of those acts. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. And <laughs> that there, that this person had sinned. And therefore they're receiving their just rewards for what they're doing. So now me is the moral superiority person, I can now judge that person for the sins that they committed, and I can do it quite easily. Well, Jesus was against that. And Jesus was not saying to any of his followers to worship him. Right. If anything, he said, follow me. And I, I kind of equate it like this. Imagine you have the first car on the block, <laughs> on your block. And someone said, you want to go for a ride because the only ride you're going to get is with me because there's no other car. And I think that that's the same principle that Jesus was using when he talked about pick up, you know, start following me. I'm going to show you because this is part of his ministry. I'm going to show you what it's like, one, to experience the father and two, to live out your life in accord with the father. It was a complete show and tell. And a lot of the things that Jesus had to share was directly related to his disciples. This is what you do. And then he would go up and he would get into, Jesus would find himself in a very kind of um, a pickly kind of a situation. And he would, they would be amazed at how he can get out of it. That was showing them how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just made me think of just some weird thought. Like, you know, the idea of like the Antichrist coming, you know, I wonder if that idea, rather than it being evil, is um, some type of someone coming to say, hey, you guys just got all this shit wrong. Well, I also think that there are dark forces in the world and that those dark forces do not like people who are working towards and interested in experiencing the light and living the light. And that I think we've all been in some regards seduced by all the magic and all the power of the material world. And there are forces out there that are consolidating more and more of their power. And I think that this is, a bit, we're going to see something in a similar manner that might be like the, Tower of Babel, <laughs> you know, where you have concentration of power and all that's going to get, you know, broken up. So maybe the uh, the end times is going to be a bit like that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, this is a lot. There's a lot of information 
uh, just in that one subject. What will the end times look like? I don't know. If there's an end time. Like- well, I think, you know what? We have transitions. We have the procession of equinoxes. We have the 26-year 26,000-year cycle that the Earth goes through its wobble, and it goes through the constellations, you know, and it takes roughly 2,000 years, a little more, a little less, to go through these grand cycles. And we're going through, we're kind of entering into this new cycle of time. And it's, you know, safe to say, you know, this is the end of this particular era, this particular time is over. So what, is there some type of birth pangs that the new era brings with it, like a new birth? Makes sense to me that that could happen. That does. Like, I mean, I, I do believe, sorry about the dog. Okay. <laughs> but I do believe that, you know, um, you know, that we are going through some type of transitional phase, but it seems to be more of a conscious transition, something going on with our consciousness rather than like a physical annihilation. I believe that that's true. Question is, is whether or not there's going to be, you know, the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the strikes with the asteroids and those types of things. And then uh, how power is going to get more and more consolidated into smaller and smaller groups of people. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before we wrap this up, okay, and, and one thank you for a really interesting interview. <laughs> this was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, where can my listeners find you and find your book? I have a Facebook page. Um, it is David Collis. And I also have a new Facebook kind of group page called the Aquarian Light Codes. And my book is Interviewing Jesus the Man, and it's available on Amazon. So I have a print version, an audio version, and an electronic version that are for sale. All right. So send me those links and I will include those in the notes of this episode so my listeners can uh, check all that out when they're listening. Okay. um, So uh, thank you for coming on. And this was a great interview. And hang on for one second while I play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.